family dinner, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, that we're going to expand um, our space. We're looking to move uh, three doors up into Stefan, what used to be Stefan's restaurant. It's next door to the Marietta Flower Shop. We signed the lease on Friday, and we're going to start the, con- the demolition on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. And there's a plan that you can't see right now that's stuck up back there um, in that kitchen area, and there's another one out front. Feel free to look at that, uh, those plans, the general idea. We, we need to move our elementary school kids out of here and up the street to create some more room for uh, babies. We, we're have many babies and we need another nursery room. So in order to do that, we're gonna move our elementary school kids up the street. So in this building, it's about 2,300 square feet. Um, We're gonna, it's a pretty good size room for uh, worship and teaching for the elementary school kids. It can hold about 42 children. And uh, so that's 84 kids over two services, which is if we get to the point where we have 84 kids over two services from kindergarten to fifth grade, then we've got a problem in here as well. There's not, we only can fit 200 people in here, so we should be okay from a ratio perspective. That was something some people have asked. Have we, are we thinking too small? But we don't believe that that's the case. So um, there's, a, there's a room up there. We're going to send the kindergarten through fifth grade. They'll check in up there. They'll do praise and worship in that room. And then really what we're excited about for them, right now there's not enough room for them to break up into small groups. So everybody, kindergarten through fifth grade, is not just hearing the same thing, but they're getting the same small group lesson. If you've ever been around a kindergartner and a fifth grader, there's a big gap there. So we're, uh, we're excited to be able to give them some space to break up into age-appropriate small groups. Um, the layout of the building, there'll be a pretty good-sized lobby. And then this classroom, the kindergarten, first and second graders will stay in the classroom for their small groups. And the third, fourth, and fifth graders will come out and they'll be able to sit around some of these cafe tables for their small groups. So we're really excited for the kids. Um, Once we get that building uh, fixed, that's where the students will go uh, during the 11 o'clock service. It'll give a place for them, for their small groups in the front of that lobby. They'll be with us for worship, then they'll go up there for their small group time. And the thing I'm most excited about, and it's still uh, kind of a vision at this point, it's not yet a reality, is what that lobby area can be during the week. We're setting it up to be pretty flexible. We'll have a conference table, we'll have um, a coffee station, some type of self-serve coffee station. I'm not sure exactly what that will look like. There'll be some couches and some tables and some chairs. And my hope and my belief is that out of that space, it'll create a context for more people to begin to do their deals. I don't know what that is. If part of what your thing is is to connect with other people, we hope that'll be a space where you can do it. It won't feel churchy. It'll be relaxed. Obviously, it's open to y'all because you're paying for it. So hopefully you're paying for it. So, um, we, we want you, I want you dreaming, asking the Lord. I mean, if, if there's, we'll talk a little bit more today about these good works that God has for us. And if part of it for you is connecting with folks, particularly maybe if it's people around here, if you need a place to meet people, it's a great place for that. A lot of you, your business, you're independent, you don't have an office, we're fine with you using that to set up meetings and do all that kind of stuff. We want it to be used and hopefully for things that don't feel overly religious. Our goal is to really see that as a place for people to connect. Kind of in church planting literature, they call it green space. It's not yellow, it's yours, it's not blue, it's mine, it's green. Yellow and blue made green. And so kind of the picture there, it's a shared space for all of us, uh, us and people who are not yet us. So I'm excited about that. If you have any questions, 
Did I say something wrong? Vote yellow and blue make green? Okay. So that's when y'all laughed, so I didn't know if I messed up the primary colors. So if y'all have any questions, Hicks Poor, who's a member of our church, is running the project from RN. He has made himself available. Um, I can give you his contact information. Uh, He's out of town this weekend. He'll be more than happy to answer any questions you have from a construction standpoint. If you have questions from a vision standpoint, please come see me about that, and I'll do my best to um, help talk you through it. This I thought was pretty cool. I got an email from a lady uh, who's been coming here, I don't know, maybe for six or eight months, and she said she gave a, she put a check in the offering last week, and she asked if she could transfer that to our building fund. And I, I said, sure. And she said, here's the back story. When I woke up in the morning, I was writing a check to the church, and I wrote, I felt like the Lord said, write building on the memo line. And then I thought, that's silly. Stonebridge doesn't have a building fund. They're not building anything. She hadn't been here. Uh, on Tuesday night, and then she came on Sunday, and she heard that story. So that's just a, a neat little thing, I think, for us that kind of helps us know we're walking in the right, right direction, and the Lord is hopefully in this. Uh, specifics, we're hoping to start this week. We're hoping to be done sometime in early August, so the kids can be in there when their fall kicks off sometime in mid-August. The total cost is about $105,000. The city asked us to do a couple of things that jacked the price up a little bit, and then we needed to do something with the lighting um, that raised the price as well. So it's about $105,000 total. Our landlord is paying 40 of that. So for us, it's $65,000, and that's everything. That's paper towel holders and pencils and everything that we have to do. So we've tried to be as inclusive as possible in the bid. So it's $65,000, and... We've done this a couple of times. If you've been with us for long, you're probably getting tired of the constant renovation, but that's just kind of the way things have worked for us. And we don't do pledge cards and long-term commitments. I'm just asking if this is your church, if you should, if when you're going to church, if you come here, then you need to, then you need to contribute. That's the bottom line. You need to contribute how much it's between you and the Lord. You just need to pray and whatever God tells you to give, you need to give. And we'd love to have the money by the end of June. So whatever you can do during the month of June, come on. I'm not joking. We're paying cash, so, uh, but we're not financing anything. So we need the money um, during the next month. Just on your check, you can write building. That'll help us know um, for our future purposes what came in through regular offerings and what was a building. It just helps us from an accounting perspective. So again, you can just pray and if you pray and, and the Lord says don't give anything, then you don't need to give anything. But then you can come talk to me and we'll see whether or not you're hearing God correctly. <laughs> After that, if you're married and you pray and you come up with one number and your spouse comes up with another, y'all can either go back or you can take the lower one. That's totally up to y'all. It doesn't need to be something that creates conflict in your marriage. So you just ask the Lord and we'll trust that we'll come up with, that he'll provide the money that we need to make this happen. Good? And again, any questions about the vision, you can see me. If you have questions about finances, is Al Otto here? Al Otto. If you have Al Otto's on our finance team, if you have any questions about it from financially, you can see Al. And again, if it's from the construction point of view, you can see Hicks. Okay. So this is what we've been doing. We've been walking through Colossians. We're almost through the kind of the introductory section. Just a broad overview. Colossians was written by Paul. And it was written in response to um, a report that he got from one of his protégés named Epaphras, who started this church in Colossae. Paul had never been to Colossae. He's in jail. Epaphras is reporting back to him, saying, this is what's happening in this church. 
Paul likes what he hears, and so he's writing a letter. Most of the letter's positive. There's a few things that he's trying to correct, but for the most part, he's saying, this is great. So Paul has introduced himself, and he's, and he's kind of given them this blessing. This is what I want for y'all. He's this Thanksgiving part of his letters. If you read his letters, he always has this Thanksgiving part where he's saying, this is what I'm happy about. This is what I see God doing in y'all and among y'all, and I'm thanking him for that. And last week, we looked at this prayer that he prayed. He, he prayed this, it was in verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so we looked at that and kind of what that looks like. And, and then Paul gives the reason for the prayer in verse 10. The reason we're praying this, the reason we're praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will is in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. And we closed out last week and we were looking at some, some other masters that compete with Jesus. When, it, when we were talking about living a life worthy of the Lord or trying to please him in every way, that's a great ideal. But for a lot of us, there's some competition. There, there's some other things that compete with please something else in every way. Many of us, we would say we please Jesus in a lot of ways, but not necessarily in every way. And we talked about three different things. We talked about ourself, that's Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. We said this was kind of, I made a couple of sexist statements, and one of them was I think men tend to struggle with this more so than women. I think guys have a bigger issue with selfish ambition than girls do. Again, that's a stereotype, but it is, I'll put that out there. And there, for a lot of us as guys, it's fine when our agenda and Jesus' agenda for our life, when they run parallel, we think we're following him, we're really not. We're just running in this, we're just going in the same direction. And at some point, his path for us goes one direction, and that's when we have an issue. Because our selfish ambition begin, keeps going this way, and he's over here, and there's this gap that's created between his desires for us and our desire. That's why Paul says you can't do anything out of selfish ambition, not one thing, nothing out of selfish ambition, because what that's going to do is it creates this gap between where Jesus is headed and where you're headed. And one of the ways you can see that is, are you actually following him, or do you just happen to be going in the same direction? If Jesus is for my prosperity, well, great, so am I. If Jesus is for my health, well, great, so am I. If Jesus is for my business to be blessed, well, great, well, so am I. If Jesus, you get that. But at some point, following him might cost me something, and that's where that tension comes in. Am I trying to please him in every way, or am I trying to please him in some ways and please me? And some others. We talked about um, others. Some of us, we try to please others. Sometimes that's just, it's a parent, it's a spouse, it's a boss. You get that. That's kind of self-explanatory. And then we talked about an image. And again, kind of my sexist statement was I think women tend to struggle in this area. There's an image that's kind of out there. This is what it means to be a woman. And this is what it means to be a wife. And this is what it means to be a mom. Particularly where we live. And the images are, a lot of them are contradict one another. But for some reason, everybody tries to do all of it all the time. <clears throat> and so there's this image and this set of expectations and obligations that go with being a woman. And you might find yourself, if you're a woman, you might find yourself saying, I'm trying to please this ideal that's out there. And it's, it's, uh, it's not necessarily something solid that you could grab onto, because if you could grab onto it, you could see it's unrealistic. It's impossible to be this. But it's somewhere maybe back in your mind, in your subconscious, that's constantly pushing you. Jump higher, jump higher, jump higher. And so we talked a little bit about that and the importance of being set free from those things. And this week, picking up in verse 10, 
We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. So we need to know, we need to know God's will for us in order, so, in order that we can live a life worthy of him. And then Paul gives three characteristics of this life worthy of the Lord. So if, we, if we're living a life worthy of God, if we're pleasing him in every way, we're going to bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And then the verse ends kind of funny. It just says, and joyfully. And then the next verse uh, picks up, giving thanks to the Father. So we're going to see how much of this we get through. So last week, Paul says, this is what I'm praying. This is why I'm praying it. Know the will of God so that you can live a life worthy of him, please him in every way. And here, this week, this is what it looks like. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened, with all power through his glorious might, so that you'll have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. So bearing fruit, first thing, bearing fruit. A few weeks ago we looked and we said that it's the gospel that bears fruit. That's in verse 6. We kind of hammered this. It's the gospel that bears fruit. It's God's word, the message of the kingdom that bears fruit. Not our words. God doesn't have to back up what we say. He backs up what he says. According to Isaiah 55, it's what he says, his word, that doesn't return empty, that doesn't return void, that accomplishes what he set out for it to accomplish, not ours. And, but here we see Paul saying, we'll bear fruit in every good work. So there might be a little contradiction there, but this is, this is it. There's an interaction or an interface between God's activity and ours. He could have set things up however he wanted to. He could have made it where he snaps his fingers and everything happens, but that's not what he's done. For better or for worse, he's decided to join himself to us. He said, I'm going to work through my people. There are rare occasions where he works directly. Almost all the time, however, he chooses to work through people. Read the Bible. The number of times an angel shows up and communicates directly to a person or the number of times that an angel does something directly without human involvement versus the number of times God works through a person. Massively outweighs this, this working through a person. So the gospel does bear fruit, but it bears fruit through us. In the parable of the sower, the gospel is the seed. Seeds don't bear fruit unless they're planted. They're sitting in the package, or they're sitting in the counter, or they're sitting in your hand. They don't bear any fruit. You've got to put them in the dirt. And the farmer is the one who sows the seed. That's us. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus said to us, Go into all the world and make disciples. Tell them these things to his own disciples before he left. He said, you need to go, but you, you need to wait until you've been filled with the Spirit, and then you need to go and be my witnesses. That's what we've talked about, being messengers of the kingdom. That's all of us. When you share the gospel, whether that's kind of the subjective gospel or your testimony that we talked about last week, you're spreading, you're sowing, you're planting the seeds that eventually will bear fruit. If you want an apple tree, you need to plant what kind of seeds? Apple, perfect. If you want tomatoes, what kind of seeds? Tomato. So if you want apples and you plant tomatoes, are you going to be disappointed? Absolutely. Is it the seed's fault that you're going to be disappointed? Is it the dirt's fault? Is it God's fault? No, it's your fault. You planted the wrong thing. That's the picture here. The fruit is... is inherent in the seed or intrinsic to the seed the seed determines the fruit and so if what you're looking for is kingdom 
fruit, eternal fruit, and all of the things that fall under the kingdom, and everything good falls under the kingdom. So if that's what you're looking for, then that's the seed we need to plant. That's why Paul says it's the gospel that bears fruit. It bears the type of fruit that we're looking for. It's kingdom fruit. If you're looking for love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or gentleness or faithfulness or self-control, that's kingdom fruit. So that's ne that needs to be the message that you're planting. If you're looking for forgiveness, if you're looking for direction, guidance, purpose, healing, all of that falls under the umbrella of the, ki of the kingdom. So that's the seed that we need to be planting. It's the gospel that produces that fruit. But it pro the gospel produces fruit as we plant it. Paul says this in Romans 10, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? You see the connection. We believe because we've heard something. We can't hear it if nobody's told us. Are there times where God speaks directly to somebody, not through another person? Yes. You hear about these stories, particularly coming out of closed countries in the Middle East, countries where it's against the law to be a Christian and where missionaries are not allowed. You'll hear it particularly of Muslims who have dreams, and Jesus appears to them in a dream and speaks to them, and they're converted, and they say, yes, I'm following him. If I were to take a poll of the people in this room who are Christians, my guess is that 0% became a Christian because Jesus appeared to you in a dream. We don't live in a closed country where it's illegal to be a Christian and where it's illegal to share our faith. What that shows to me, those dreams, that's not how God normally works. That shows how committed he is to getting his message out. And no matter how hard people work to keep his message from getting out, he can always run around it. That shows his desire to connect with people, to bring people into relationship with him. It doesn't say, see, you don't have to plant any seeds. It's the wrong, that's the wrong application to draw from that. 1 Corinthians 3.6, this is Paul. I, Paul, planted the seed. Apollos, that's another apostle, watered it. But God made it grow. You see there, we plant the seed. You get that. So we're, we have a responsibility when it comes to bearing fruit. We don't produce the fruit. That's the gospel. We just plant the gospel so that it can do its thing. I put my tomato seeds in the ground. I water them. God makes it grow. He's responsible for making it grow and producing the tomatoes. My responsibility is just to put it in the ground and water it. Same thing for all of us. Bearing fruit in every. This is John 15. I'm the vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withered. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Down to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love one another. We don't have time to get into that passage. It's a great passage. We don't have time to dig into it. The point is this. Jesus expects us to bear fruit. Just like when you plant a seed, when you plant, if you planted tomatoes or whatever you planted in your garden this past spring, you expect that plant to produce fruit. If it doesn't, you say it's a dud, and you pull it up and you throw it away. The same thing is true of Jesus with us. 
He expects us to bear fruit. It's not exceptional Christians that bear fruit. It's regular Christians who bear fruit. The ones that don't, he says, those branches, they're cut off and they wither and they die and they get gathered up and thrown into the fire. And you can draw the connection on what that is. Not good. He's expecting us to bear fruit. And the picture there is that we're the branch and he's the trunk. And as we stay connected to him, we'll bear fruit. Um, Sap in a tree, it's like a nutrient transport system. It transports nutrients and water to all parts of the tree. It's kind of like the blood of a tree. So as long as the branch is connected to the trunk, that sap can flow and fruit will be produced. And it's not hard. Your tomato plants don't sweat when it comes to producing. They're not tired after producing tomatoes. It's what they do as long as those branches are connected to the stalk. And the same thing is true for us. As long as you stay connected to Jesus, then the sap, which is the Holy Spirit, or who is the Holy Spirit, will flow from him into us and will produce fruit. It's still him that produces it, but he does it through our work. In Genesis 39, I think it's 23, Joseph is in jail. He's been thrown in jail for something he didn't do. And he's there, and he's, he's kind of worked his way up. The warden has seen that he's a, a good guy, he's trustworthy. And the, the, closing chap, the closing verse in that chapter says something like this. The warden didn't worry about anything because he saw that God gave Joseph success in whatever Joseph did. And the picture there, that's what it means to bear fruit. God, he'll produce it in us, but only as we're doing something. If Joseph didn't do anything, then there was nothing God could bring success to. If all Joseph does is sit on the couch and watch Oprah, there's nothing God can do. Then he can bring success to him sitting on the couch and watching Oprah. That's it. It's only as Joseph begins to walk out and actually begins to engage in life, begins to take responsibility in this prison, that's when God can bring success to what he's done. And the same thing is true for us. He wants to produce fruit through us, but it's only as we actually step out, begin to obey, begin to be intentional in moving forward that there's anything he can bless, that there's anything he can bring success to. Again, if all of the seeds are still in your hand, he can't produce fruit. At some point, we have to plant them. And that's not just talking about spreading the gospel to other people. I mean the things that God has given to you, the ideas that he's put in your heart, the passions that he's given to you, the things that you think, man, it would be great if dot, dot, dot. There's a reason you think that and not me, because he probably wants you to take responsibility for that. Until you begin to move in that direction, there's nothing God can do to bring fruit. You get that. Good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. That reminds us of Ephesians 2.10. We talk about that all the time. God's created good works in advance for us to do, for us to walk in, and we have to figure out what those things are. You need to know. And I would say particularly, this is not picking on anybody, but I was thinking about this um, kind of in general. The picture, I think, a lot of times of people who are trying to do their good works or get involved, a, a lot of times it's kind of this 22-year-old, fresh-faced person, a lot of zeal, a lot of energy, not a lot of direction, just saying, point me in the right, and I'll run. And there's absolutely, when you're 22, you need to know what your deal is, you need to know the good works that God has put in front of you, you need to go after them. But you also need to do it when you're 32, when you're 42, when you're 52, when you're 62, when you're 72. You can retire from your job, but you can't retire from your deal. For all of us, 
there are things that God has for us to do. And for some of you, you're in a life place. Maybe you're an, you're empty nesters, your kids are gone. Maybe um, work-wise, you're stable. You're not having to scramble anymore. Maybe you're either retired or you're semi-retired. You actually have more opportunity to do the good works than some of us who are have kids running around and are trying to get started in our careers and all of those kind of things. There's no excuse for those of us in that stage of life at all. But for some of you who've moved past that, rather than saying, I'm going to spend the rest of my time, you know, cruising around the world or whatever it is that you would do, is say, how does the Lord want me to use this time? I'm 60 or I'm 65 or I'm 70 or I'm 55. What am I supposed to be doing? What are the good works that God has created for me to do? You're not done with them yet. Until you're dead, there's something for you to do. So my encouragement to you, if you're in, for everybody, but particularly if you're in that life stage, where maybe you've got some more time coming, what does it look like for you to do good works? Again, kind of the picture of a missionary is a 18 or 20 or 22-year-old with no money and a bunch of enthusiasm running to Africa. I think more and more the face of a missionary is going to be a 55-year-old who's worked for 30 years, who can support themselves, who doesn't have to raise any support, who has 30 years of skill and experience and wisdom, and they can take on the mission field. Not just enthusiasm for Jesus, but something, some skill, some knowledge to give to somebody else and say, here, this, this will help you move forward. I'm not saying everybody needs to go a, a, across the world. For many of us, most of us, we're going to stay here. But I, want you, I don't want you to disqualify yourself from doing your deal because of your age, young or old. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Knowledge, we've said before, it's experiential, it's relational, it's not academic. It's not knowing about, it's knowing. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, knowing the Father and the one that you've sent. That's Jesus talking. That's what eternal life is in the Muslim world, if you die as a martyr, eternal life for you is you get 70 virgins. That's not it for us. We get God. He's the prize. He's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's knowing him as intimately as possible. John 17, 3 again. This is eternal life. You want a definition, knowing God and the one that you sent, Jesus. James 1, 22 says this. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. After looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Kind of this picture sometimes we think of growing in the knowledge of God where I've got to read the Bible more. Yes, you do. We talk, we've talked about that. It's important for us to develop a habit of reading the Bible. We've got to figure out how to do that, how to get the word into our hearts. But it's not enough just to read it. Some of you maybe took religion classes when you were in college. I did uh, at Georgia. And my professors who knew the Bible backwards and forwards, I wouldn't, they didn't know Jesus a lick at all. They knew the Bible and they knew the history and they knew the context and they knew Greek and they knew Hebrew and they knew, they knew all of that. But they didn't know God. It's not enough just to read the Bible. We have to do it. That's what James says. We've said before, God doesn't give advice and he doesn't give suggestions. He tells us how to live. The Bible is a revelation, who God is, who we are, and how we're supposed to interact with him and one another. And again, it's not open for suggestions. It's not just, well, if you 
If you want to, you can do these things. The expectation is as you read it, that you'll begin to do it. For some of us, it might be a good exercise not to read chapter 2 until we're doing chapter 1. Let's read chapter 1, ask the Lord, what, what do I need to be doing with this? Not just so I can check off on my Jesus card that I read the Bible today, but what do you want me to do with this? You might not be able to incorporate or assimilate the whole chapter. That, that's okay. But what's the nugget? What's the verse? What's the principle? What's the idea that he's saying for today? Do this. Sometimes it's easy because they're commands, especially in, in the letters from Romans on through. They're commands there. As, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. Okay, I can, I can do that. That's something maybe I can grab onto. Look at my relationships. Where am I causing strife? Where am I causing uh, disunity? Or where am I disrupting harmony? Well, as much as it depends on me, I'm going to live at peace. But there are other, plenty of other places in the Bible where it's very difficult to know well, what am I supposed to do with that? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Great. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to work that into my life? You need to ask. It's all of these things that are in there are in there for a reason. There's a lot of things that could be in the Bible. We know Jesus spent three years in public ministry. I guarantee you he said more than what's written down in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he did more than what we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The reason these stories made it is because they communicate something that we have to know about God, about ourselves, and about how to live. And so it's important for us to take the time to dig in and say, what does it look like for me to do these things? Not just to read it and forget about it. That's the guy in James. You look at yourself in the mirror, and then you forget what you look like. It hasn't done you any good. You shouldn't even look in the mirror then if you've already forgotten. God expects us to do these things. Matthew 25, there's a parable of, it's called the parable of the talents. You remember that? There's a guy who goes on a journey and he leaves some money with three different guys. One guy gets $10,000, one guy gets $5,000, and one guy gets $1,000. He says, I'll be back. And he comes back and he says, what would y'all do with my money? And the guy with 10000 doubled it, and the guy with 5000 doubled it, and the guy with 1000 had buried it. And the master says, what are, you, what are you doing? You didn't even put it in the bank so I could earn interest? What would you bury it for? And the guy kind of gives this excuse, and the master says, uh-uh. Take away, this is what he says in verse 39. He says, take away this $1,000 that he has and give it to the guy that got 10. That's not fair. Everyone who has will be given more. And he who has will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. The principle there is use it or lose it. If there's things that the Lord has shown you in the Bible, if there are things that you know to be true about him or about what he wants you to do with your life, if you're not doing those things, you're going to lose that. And you say, well, how can I lose something I know? It'll just fade farther and farther, and it'll become less and less likely that you act on it. One of the hearts, pictures of the heart in the parable of the sowers, it's the hard ground. The seed falls on hard ground, it can't penetrate, and so the birds come and eat it. That's what happens if you don't use what God has given you. It gets snatched away somehow. Some of you may have known people. They were walking towards the Lord, they were interested, they were beginning to explore, and some things were happening. And then for whatever reason, they just stalled. You don't stay stalled for long. You start moving backwards pretty quick. That's the principle, and it's true for us as well. It's not to scare you. That's just to say, when God shows you something, he expects you to do something with it. When you read something in the Bible and the, the light goes off, the expectation from the Lord is you're going to do something with it. If you don't, you're going to lose it.
bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. This is passive. Bearing fruit, that's a more active thing. Growing in the knowledge of God, there's a little action there. Being strengthened, that's passive. It's something that's done to us. The Lord is the one who strengthens us. Remember Acts 1.8, he tells his disciples, you need to wait on the Holy Spirit until he's filled you, until you've been clothed with power. Then go out and be my messengers. Don't go out in your own strength. Even though you've got the right seed, you've got the gospel, you don't want to sow that in your own strength. You need to wait until you've been clothed with power. This is Ephesians 1. This is another prayer Paul prays. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the Excuse me, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. You see that. What Paul is saying, saying, I want you to know this power that raised Christ from the dead. And we've said before, no, it's not academic. It's relational and it's experiential. I want you to experience this power that raised Christ from the dead. That's the power that's at work in us or that is available to us as we stay connected to Jesus. That's where you're strengthened. So as we talk about what it looks like to be strengthened, don't think that means you grit your teeth and you screw up your will and you say, I'm going to be strengthened. It's not that at all. It's a recognition that you're not strong enough and you need him to strengthen you and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you as you stay connected to Jesus. Being strengthened in every good work, excuse me, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance. That's perseverance, a steadfast adherence to a course of action in spite of difficulties and testing. And patience, patience is a state of inner calm and rest in the midst of difficult circumstances. You see a theme there. And joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Joy is a state of great delight grounded in a conscious relationship with the Lord. Usually circumstances that cause us to have joy don't require patience or great endurance. And usually circumstances that require great endurance and patience don't really provoke or promote joy in our hearts. And Paul has smashed all that together. And what he said is, in these difficult testing type circumstances when you need great endurance. That means you need to hang in there, don't quit. And you need patience. That's inner calm. Not just waiting, but a state of inner calm when everything around you is falling apart. In those circumstances where you need to hang in there and you need to keep it together. Be joyful. A state of conscious delight in your relationship with the Lord. Because for us, our joy is not tied to our circumstances. It's tied to the fact that we're connected to Jesus. And so whatever's going on around us, whether we're having to have great endurance or patience or everything is peaches and cream, we can have joy. I was reading in Genesis today. Y'all remember Abraham. So he's the father of our faith. He's 75 years old and God gives him this promise and says, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. Abraham's thinking, I don't, even, I don't have a kid yet. How are you going to make me into a mighty nation? God says, I'll take care of that. 75 years old. He has Isaac when he's 100. 20, some of you aren't even 25 years old yet. He waited 25 years for this promise to be fulfilled. 
That's a long time. Think where you were 25 years ago, those of you who are over that. I was in the fifth grade. It's a long time to wait for God to fulfill a promise. When he's 86, 11 years into it, he screws up. His wife says, I don't know that this is going to happen. Take my maidservant. Take Hagar. And so he does. And he has a son by her named Ishmael. And it's caused all kinds of problems. That even He waited. Think about where you were 11 years ago in 1999. He waited a long time. Patience and perseverance for Abraham. He had to be patient. The state of inner calm, of trusting. God promised this. And if you read from Genesis, it's about 12 to about 20. Four different times God reconfirms, I'm going to do this. In some pretty significant ways. There are some pretty significant confirmations where God says, this is going to happen, Abraham. Four over over 25 years, that's not a lot, but it's something. So he has to be patient and he has to persevere in the midst of all of the evidence that says this is never going to happen. Your wife is too old to have kids. It's not going to work. He has to persevere. I think that's a, a picture for us. Some of you may find yourself there today. You feel like there's something the Lord has put in your heart. Or you just know something to be true because it's in the Bible and you're not experiencing it in your life. And my encouragement to you, be patient. No, I'm not just saying wait. A state of inner calm, expecting God to answer and persevere. Hang in there. Don't give up. This is a little graphic, but if Abraham sends Sarah to her own tent and he goes to his own tent, they're never going to have a baby. That's not perseverance. That's giving up. So he's disappointed every month for 25 years. And Sarah's disappointed every month for 25 years. But they keep doing their part. And there's something for all of us. There's a, a part for us to play as we're waiting for God to bear fruit. You're working and you're working and you're working. And you say there's no fruit here. It's not your job. His job is the fruit. Your job is to do the work. It's to give him a platform. It's to give him something that he can bless. And in the interim, as you wait, I don't know that any of you have waited 25 years. Maybe you have. But if you've waited for one or you've waited for two or you've waited for 12, the encouragement from Abraham is you keep patience. You keep persevering. And in the midst of that, and this is the hard part, can you joyfully give thanks to the Father? Is there some way for you The God who has not answered the prayer yet. The God who has not produced any fruit. The God who has not allowed Sarah to conceive. Is there some way to joyfully thank him when it seems like he's holding the blessing back from you? When it seems like he is keeping from you this thing that he's promised. Is there a way for you to say, no, I'm going to take great delight in the fact that I have a relationship with him. It's easier to give up than it is to hang in there. Not just physically, but particularly emotionally. The easiest thing to do is to bail. Well, that must just, I must have missed it. God didn't really say that to me. So I'm going to throw in the towel. The easiest thing in the world to do. It's difficult when you're 80 years old and your wife is 70 years old and she's never had a kid to say, this is going to be the month. It's hard to do. That's patience. That's perseverance. And it's given to us by the Lord. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, 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 peace, patience, 
Romans 15.5, the God of endurance will give you endurance. He provides it. He's looking for us to grab onto it and to walk in it. Let's pray. This is what I want you to do. Kind of three things. We had bearing fruit in every good work.